who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going to 2013 and looking at the action-horror-science-fiction hybrid Battle of the Damned. In this new take on the zombie genre, Dolph plays Major Max Gatlin, a special forces badass who teams up with a band of renegade robots to fend off an unrelenting army of the undead. You'll have to move fast. In and out, no more than a day. And don't believe what you may have heard. There's nothing in there now. You think you're the first? Being others like you, they all died. Welcome to hell. There's no way out of the infection zone. What are you? Advanced utility robots. You dangerous? Yes. Zombies, killer robots. Nice town you got here. Who's your commander? Major Major Max Max Gatlin. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to chat this one is Ryan Rabalkin from Going the Distance, the Rocky Series podcast. Ryan, it's been a while uh, that, that I've been wanting you on for a long time, but uh, I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here today. I truly am excited to talk about this film, to talk about our journey to this film and everything involved with it. Well, and actually, and before we before we get to this film, I, I do have to ask you a bit. I mean, because you've been, shoot, you've been podcasting a while, um, and the, the, your current show is Going the Distance, the Rocky Series podcast. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that, because it's my understanding that pretty much your show, you guys take a look at all of the Rocky films from the very first Rocky, and currently you're up to Creed Two. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's a journey that started about five years ago with my brother, but now I have uh, two new co-hosts that have joined the uh, 
have joined the show since that time. That's uh, Katie and Kyle. They're excellent co-hosts. We love them. And Ruben's given his full support. That's my brother. Uh, he just went on to bigger and better things in his life. And he doesn't podcast anymore because, you know, five years is a long time. <laughs> you know, we had a casting change, you could say. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, so we're on season eight of the show, which coincides with Creed 2 being the eighth film in the Rocky uh, franchise. And each season has anywhere from 15 to 25 plus episodes. And we break down the film in order and we scatter interviews throughout the uh, throughout the breakdown of the movies. Uh, and if you want to check it out, and you're a big Rocky fan. We're on the last of the Action Heroes podcast networks. So if you're listening to Sean's show on a feed that isn't that network, we encourage you to come over and check out our show and other shows on our network. We've got James Bond podcast. We've got Bruce Willis movies. Uh, we've got, uh, of course, the Dolph Lundgren podcast, which you're listening to now. Arnold Schwarzenegger, another Rocky uh, coverage called Rocky Minute, Slycast, which breaks down Sylvester Sloan films. I'm missing somebody because I'm doing this. Oh, yeah, Steven Seagal, even. <laughs> so <laughs> we got, I can't forget Steven. Did I forget anybody? Because I'm doing this at the top of my head. And we've got a few, uh, few no, shows yeah. on our, I think I think it's everyone. So anyways, check us out on the last of the Action Heroes podcast network. So I guess my big question for you, and I was I was going to ask you this offline, but I'll just I'll just ask it right now. So sure. when you guys when you guys are finished with Creed two, where do you guys go from there? Like I mean, you know that that that's my big wondering. If you guys have five years invested in this, I'd hate to see it end. I imagine it will not end. So what is uh w- what's going to be the next step? I wish I could like clone myself into three different pers- persons or like me, like three Ryans, because I, th- I want to like revisit the Rocky movies with Katie and Kyle because time has passed. I think my podcasting skills have improved, which isn't saying much. I'm just saying, I think they're a little bit better no. than when I first started. Um, I know the also, <laughs> yeah. I think most podcasters kind of are like that. We, we start, we don't know. I remember when I first started, like my first episode is almost unlistenable, but it's kind of fun to go back and listen to it. And I like to thank anyone that stuck with the show after the first you know, half of my first, first season. But anyways, so there's that kind of thought process, but I'm, I wouldn't say I'm getting tired of Rocky because that's not how I feel at all about the franchise, but I kind of want to challenge myself in other ways. And it's one of those ways is actually just the ramble franchise, take the same, uh, coverage and format and just roll right into the Rambo franchise because there's a lot of fans of Rambo. In fact, there's a lot of Rambo fans that aren't Rocky fans. They don't always coincide. People are Rambo fans that aren't Rocky fans. So there's a new audience out there that would like to hear, I think, the coverage of the Rambo films. And lastly, uh, I don't know. There's there's Part of me wants to end Creed 2 quicker than I started. I know that sounds terrible to anyone who listens to my show because it's not in a bad way, but it's just it's a harder film to get through. I love the film. Because it's not quite a Rocky film, I've been torn. Like I'm, I'm tackling it the same way I did it with the Rocky films. Like giving it the same coverage and and uh, and I don't know if I should have. If that makes, sense. I should have maybe just done the Rocky scenes. If I gone, if I could have gone back in time, I might have just done the breakdown of the scenes that Rocky's in. If that makes sense. Well, you know, it's so it's funny. Just, it's taking it's taking long. Sorry, it's, it's just taking a little bit longer than I anticipated, and I'm doing a lot of sailing coming up. So it's just the season's broken up a little bit longer than I anticipated because of my sailing schedule in the Navy, too. Well, it's so funny that you mentioned the early the early shows and the early seasons because it's it's really kind of funny and uh, serendipitous, I guess, the fact that we we are covering and discussing uh, Battle of the Damned for this one because you know it's interesting. I went back through and checked out one of my early episodes and like you, I'm kind of like, Oh my God, it was almost virtually un- unlistenable. I-, I felt, you know, I mean, and obviously, obviously they say, you know, you are your harshest critic. So, you know, I get that right. as well, 
But it's funny because my very first um, interview episode that I ever did for the show, um, so it was episode four, so back in the early days. And for, for anyone, just to give context, okay, so episode four of the show, I uh, got to speak with Christopher Haddon, who was the writer and the director of the film that we're talking about today, Battle of the Damned, okay? So that was episode four. We are now in the 70s terms of episodes that that shows you how long it's been going crazy i went back through yeah i went back through after watching battle the damned i uh, decided well i'm going to listen to that conversation again just to you know kind of pick up on some tidbits for for our conversation today and i'm just like oh my goodness like i wasn't using the right recording equipment then and you know i'm i'm completely i'm nervous and everything in the interview i mean it's just it's not um it's not my shining moment but Christopher Hatton, God bless him, was uh, was an absolute gentleman and was was wonderful to talk to. So it's interesting you brought up Christopher uh, Hatton because I had <laughs> I have some thoughts on him and I maybe I'll not say some of the things I was going to say because you interviewed him. In fact, that was one of my questions I was going to ask you is if you've talked to him. So let me go back now and say how did you get a hold of him, hold of him and did he indicate in the interview why he hasn't done any films since 2013? Or since this film, 2013? You know, he, not, not really, but I mean, he is, I think like a lot of people in the entertainment industry, especially uh, writers and directors, getting a project underway and seeing it. I mean, I'm, there, there's tons of, uh, you know, thousands of scripts that are out there. Um, amazing scripts, I imagine, that I think just are not getting made because they're not, you know, they're not being shopped around to the right people. And I think the industry is pretty much a lot of, you know, who do you know? You know, you got to know the right person. And so I think Christopher Haddon is working and he is, you know, uh, working in in various capacities. But in terms of uh, writing and directing his own project, I think that is a huge, laborious uh, task uh, to to get something like that underway. So, yeah, it's interesting. But I'll I'll admit, man, uh, you know, granted, this is a small, little independent uh, action horror science fiction hybrid, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. But I'll admit this is so much better than I think it has any right to be. And I mean, I was going to get to it at the end and at least in my opinion, but the camera shots that this film takes the overall coloring, the, you know, the, the coloring palette of the film. I mean, it has a very moody atmospheric, uh, you know, look and style to this film that uh, I think is, uh, is pretty refreshing and welcome. Boy, you're just going right into it. eh? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to talk about what we're drinking first? Because you, yeah. you made me go buy alcohol for this podcast, which I I, I don't drink in podcasts uh, because I think it can be you know it can deter my already sloppy uh, podcasting skills. But uh, not that it, not that you or I have ever gotten drunk on a podcast. But I I think it's fun to do it when there's a proper theme. And tonight I think we both picked one that has a theme. What, what's your yes. drink of choice? Okay, so I'm hold on. All right, I just cracked it. Oh, open. there's the crack. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you've listened to the shows, I, I try to uh, pick a beverage that I think uh, aligns with the film thematically in some kind of way. And so I'll be honest, a lot of times I just kind of look at the can. And if it's if it's a cool looking can, I will, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will I will partake. So this one, it is called a Dagger Flute Citra India Pale Ale. It's by the um, Illuminate, Illuminated Brew Works out of Chicago. And I mainly got it. I think I sent you a picture. Um, it has uh, Gene Simmons on the cover. So his face paint <laughs> and there's a sword in the middle. I, nice. I don't know if it really aligns with this particular film, but um, I thought it was just a really wicked looking can. So I figured, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this one. 
Well, Craig's a big Kiss fan, so I think he'll appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Well, uh, mine is from the Tree Brewing Company in Kelowna, British Columbia. Their their tagline is "The best things in life are tree." Yes, BC being a tree hugging province, which uh, which <laughs> which we love. But the name of this beer and the reason why I picked this one is because because it's called Cutthroat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and there was so much throat cutting in this film that I thought, you know, of zombies throats being cut. I thought the title of this beer was perfect. So let me uh, crack it open and uh, cheers and good luck to our podcast this evening. Yeah. Well, and actually, okay. So I have to ask you real quick. Okay. Before we look at battle of the damned, um, please, obviously, obviously you're a big uh, guy. You're a big Rocky guy, Rambo, all of that. How about Mr. Lundgren? I mean, I know that when I, I, when I gave you the list of films that I had coming up before you landed on this one, um, I think it's fair to say you hadn't uh, seen any of those films. I don't think you had really even heard of those particular films. So I guess in terms of, uh, of action stars, where does Mr. Lundgren stand for you? Well, of course, I'm a huge Rocky fan, Stallone fan, and I admit I haven't followed Dolph's career, his straight to DVD career or video career, which started fairly early in his acting uh, very well. Uh, I was a big Van Damme fan growing up as well. I think Sly and Van Damme were my two top action stars. I'm born in 75, so I was right there in the heyday of all that stuff. But I always enjoyed Dolph. And I think the problem with Dolph at the beginning of his career, through no fault of his own, but he could both be thankful for playing Dragle and it's kind of like a blessing and curse situation is that mm-hmm. uh, he's such an opposing figure like Schwarzenegger. He's kind of limited in his, in his own, I guess he's his own worst enemy. Uh, Schwarzenegger, for example, uh, is a beast of a man, but he has a personality. And I think Dolph, I don't know. I, I think he's a little bit more, I wouldn't say robotic, but I, I don't know if he tries to play it that way or he's just not a very ranged actor and so he really is relying a lot on just being the big tough quiet talking almost like a a foreign large Clint Eastwood type character and but to answer your question I I root for Dolph and I and I want him to do well and I'm glad he's still acting and a lot of the movies and I listen to your show and I admit there's I'll listen to episodes that of of, uh of podcasts that I'm sorry, I listen to your episodes of movies I haven't seen but I will go and watch some of the movies that I've that you've talked about after you've talked about it, just to check it out. And so going into this, I think I had low expectations and we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of the details of where I was both, you know, uh, irritated, but also entertained at the same time. And I, I don't expect much more from what I saw from this. And uh, I feel bad for Dolph because when he's in the movies, like the expendables or uh, universal soldier and all these other films, when he has the right director with the right script, he's a lot of fun to watch. And I just feel bad that he's straight to the DVD bin. Well, why this particular film? Because I mean, I know I, I gave you a, a list of films. I can't remember how many of uh, how many titles I gave you. And I, I, I hope it wasn't uh, slim pickings for you, but I know this particular I can't remember. film. Yeah. I can't remember. It was either, a few months back. This, this one you singled out though. Like this one you came, you came to me and you said, I want to discuss this one. So I guess my big question for you is why battle the damned? Was it the whole robots versus zombies conceit that really intrigued you? I guess in my follow-up question to that is, are you a big 
science fiction fan, a big uh, zombie, you know, kind of guy. What what's going on there? I good, great questions. I'm a huge fan of The Walking Dead, but the reason why I love The Walking Dead is because of the human storyline. I find zombies terrifyingly boring. I think the zombie concept, I don't find them scary. I think they're just, and they're kind of gross. The fact that they just eat people. I, it's not something that I enjoy watching, but I love The Walking Dead. And I still watch it this day. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment myself. But I, I love The Walking Dead, but I hate zombie-based protagonists or, or enemies. They, I find the whole concept of them boring. However, I'm a oh, huge boy. science fiction fan. <laughs> yeah, but I'm a but okay. yeah, okay. But I'm a huge science fiction fan. I love robots, love space, and I love action films, anyways. And I like and I again, I love Dolph, and I, I want him to do well, and I've always rooted for him. So I think the reason why we tackled this it was a few months back. I think it was almost four or five months ago when we talked about the, this future date recording. Um, I think it must have been the zombies and robots. But I will admit, when I started watching this, I completely forgot the concept. And so when the robots were introduced. We'll talk about them, of course. But when they were introduced, I was like, oh, my, what is going on here? <laughs> so I admit, I, I'd forgotten everything. So I watched this very cold. I didn't, never saw the trailer. So I went in this extremely cold, not knowing there was robots to begin with. Well, I'll give you a little bit of, uh, just a little bit of backstory, but, you know, before we really look at the film. Um, and again, this, a lot of this comes from uh, Mr. Hatton, because this was, again, my very first interview uh, for, for the podcast was, uh, I got to speak at length with uh, Christopher Hatton. And so the film was initially conceived as being a follow-up sequel to the director's previous film, um, called Robotropolis. Okay. And so if you look, right. I have yeah, not, I, I have that. not seen, okay. You saw that. Yeah. And so I yeah. have not watched, um, all of Robotropolis. I've seen the trailer and a couple clips and everything, but the most interesting fact I think about that particular film is the robots in that film are, they, they look exactly the same as the robots in battle of the damned. So it could almost be looked upon as being an unofficial sequel of sorts, but they didn't change up the robot design from that film. It's together. in the Chris, it's the Chris Hatton universe. The, yeah, yeah exactly. the Chris it's, Hatton universe. He's created his own universe. And so, <laughs> oh, yeah, so man. He, he was conceptualizing this idea. And when he brought it to the uh, financiers to get the project rolling, they basically told him, Look, we want to do this project. We think it sound we think it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, we also want to add Dolph Lundgren to the project. And so, what Chris Hatton did when he, you know, of course he said yes to that because they're they're putting up the money for it, right? So, sure. it, once he discovered that uh, Dolph Lundgren was going to be on board this particular project, he came upon the decision, which was very wise, as he said. And I remember he said this in the interview. He says, "Look, I watched a bunch of his films, and anytime he's on screen." It is a Dolph Lundgren movie. He sucks the air out of the room. It is his movie. Mm. So we're going to make him the main character, and we are going mm-hmm. to have everything revolve around him. And so the character of Max Gatlin, this was written for Dolph Lundgren and with Dolph Lundgren in mind for uh, for this particular film. And I will say right now, the name Max Gatlin, like – what, what, what a cool name. <laughs> like, what a badass name. I mean, there's there's so much about this film. I don't know if you picked up on it or not. But it, it's it's very clear, and Chris Hatton even echoed this to me as well. 
both he and Dolph were fans of uh, Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken character. Right. And so there's a lot of parallels between Snake Plissken and Max Gatlin that uh, that are, are are pretty similar, which which are a lot of fun. But um, yeah, this was uh, right out of the gate. This um, you know pr- was pretty much reworked to make it a Dolph Lundgren centered movie. Um, it was filmed in Malaysia, and so if you I don't know if you watched the behind the scenes video that I sent you or not, but it was filmed oh, I, in Malaysia. I missed that. I sorry, I actually didn't. My bad. I didn't see the video. Okay. Oh no. Continue. Well, it, it, I missed the video. It, it's available. It's available on YouTube, so you can totally check it out. But if you watch it, I mean, it just looks like everybody was having a lot of fun on set, which is saying a lot considering the conditions. You know, because if you... you, I can see that. I can see that that they were having fun. I believe that. Dolph didn't dial this in. I know the the Bruce Willis podcast, where there's a a way, a lot of the movies they've talked about with Bruce, they'll often mention, and rightfully so, that Bruce kind of dials in a lot of his performance. And I think, yeah, Dolph here, he's executive producer of this film as well. You can tell that he has a vested interest in making this film good. Well, especially considering if you look at the filming uh, locations, okay? Like I was saying, this is this was filmed in Malaysia, and this is a country that is relatively close to the equator. So I guess they were dealing with just brutally hot days on set. And you can almost tell in many of the shots, especially when they're running through the streets, it just seems like everybody is just caked in sweat. And I think that kind of lends itself well to the, you know, to the themes and the tone of the film. Well, do you want to get started? Yeah, so let, let's get going. I guess, look, before we pick this film apart, I, I have to ask, because I know I kind of I kind of gave my you know recommendation a, fairly a little early, how I said that I think it's much better than it has any right to be, but I'll go to you real quick. Did you at least find more enjoyment out of this film than uh, critique, I guess we could say? Uh, yeah, I'm, I always judge movies, or music for that matter, or anything I'm... Uh, against to what it wants to be, right? Meaning, like, I know that it weren't making an Oscar film, so I don't judge it like that. I I don't look at films. The films are like a meal or a snack or something. Like, you, you know when you're going to have a peanut butter sandwich, you can still rate that peanut butter sandwich against all the peanut butter sandwiches. So you can say, oh, I don't like crunchy or I like a little bit more butter or I like to have... Uh, white bread instead of brown bread you know what so that's fair you're you're judging a peanut butter sandwich against other peanut butter sandwiches types so this is a straight to video understandably it's a lower budget film so i know that i know going in that's what i'm i'm not comparing it to uh uh you know uh oh was it a christopher nolan film you know what i mean like i recognize that not to interrupt you but i mean let's let's World War Z. I, I think you know World War Z and this That's film fair. are fairly similar in uh, you know in, in their overall um, tone and, and themes and everything like that. But World War Z sure. is also working with what four larger times budget. The budget of this. Yeah. Well, more than that easily. Yeah. Well, this yeah. movie did cost eight million dollars, which is not not cheap for an independent film. Uh, mm-hmm. But that being said, so I went into with that, and so I, I did judge it. So my critiques are actually still they they are not on the CGI or maybe the makeup or that sort of thing. So I do have critiques and problems with this film. Was I entertained? Yeah, I was. I, I had fun. And there's actually a couple legit good moments that I thought, oh, we have something here. So we can go. Do you want to go in chronological order? Because I actually took notes sort of in chronological order. Uh, I'll, I'll take your lead on how you want to go through this. Or do you just want to go through the critiques or say the things we like first? Whatever well, order okay. you want. You're, you're the well, boss. There was. 
I'm the boss. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, well, there, there's two things actually before we, and I, I know that we're kind of setting this up big time looking at the film, but one of the things that I noticed about it, I don't know if you did either, but I'm pretty sure that most of the zombies that we see in the film are simply uh, uh, extras who were living in Malaysia at the time. And I think the direction for them was essentially, we're just going to paint your faces with smeared blood and we just want you to run. Okay. I think, I think that was pretty much the direction was we just want you to run, but I will say it, man, they do an awesome job and they are downright frightening in this film. I mean, they're not the slow moving zombies, like from night of the living dead. They are sprinting in this film and it is, it's freaking frightening. Every scene they're in, I'll admit it. Yeah. It's, it's better than the lumbering zombies of like the walking dead. For example, this is definitely the, the running insane, a version of the zombie, which which I like. That's the World War Z version where they are runners. I guess they don't fatigue the way humans do or, or non-zombies. And they do mention in the film that they're not quote-unquote zombies, that there's some sort of cerebral disconnect where they're just more animalistic and, and crazy. They don't speak. You can't communicate with them. They do want to eat you. That seems to be the big thing. They do tear people apart and eat them, consume them. Um, so... I do have problems with the zombies, though, where this is a problem in all films dealing with creatures. If they, if they don't or if they're not consistent with them, within their own universe, that's the thing. So they're in this universe. Yes, they're running. They're running. Well, we should say, why are these zombies? We should tell our audience, why, why do we have zombies? And you said that they're Asian. Well, that's because this city that's infected is in an Asian nation. But they never say what Asian nation or did I miss it? No, they, they don't say it. I, I think that was pretty much, look, this is, these are who the financiers of this film are. So this is where it's going to be filmed. And so what you see Okay, is but that's the get. problem with the, what we get. <laughs> and that's one of the problems I have with the film is, yes, it's, they do, they do mention in the news or whatever it was, the narration or the news that a city had a virus from some sort of government lab or bio lab. And this was again, eight years before Corona. So take it for what you will here, but you know, art and life and life and art. Uh, but a, a virus was created in the lab and it got out and it infected the city, which is fine. Some no name, no name country, no name Asian city. So the fact that the majority of the zombies are Asian, that's fine. That's where this is. That's where it's located. But that's part of the problem with some of the cast of the characters that we see is we we have a lot of white survivors or a lot of white players. Uh, and I was a little confused about why the guy who created the virus, this is, I guess, sort of a spoiler, but if you haven't watched the movie yet, you know, the guy that created the virus, he's the one that hires Dolph Lundgren as a private right. ex-military member to go get his daughter out of the city because the city, now this is where it gets a little bit, oh, I'm a little bit infuriated by the plot. Okay. There's huge plot holes in this film, which is fine. And this is where I'm not trying to criticize the film for being straight to video, because I, even if you're straight to video or have a low budget, it doesn't mean you have to have big plot holes <laughs> and it can be easily explained or talked out of without even showing anything just by the narration of the characters. And that's what we get. We get narration for the characters where they say, the city is quarantined. It's blo- people can't get in and they can't get out. That's fair because it's quarantined. But my question is, if they're able to man such a huge area, why don't they just wipe out the zombies to begin with inside if that's the problem? Well, okay, so th- you said a couple things there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we I did. I, I, it, yeah, well, no, I mean, and I, I'm right there with you. So there's actually two revelations that are 
introduced fairly early in the film, actually. And before we right. get to those, I, I just want to give you know credit and props to the first 15 minutes of this film. Okay, and this is something else that Chris Hatton said on our interview was he really wanted to start this film out with a bang. So then that way it had some time to breathe and the audience was was not bored. And so I will say the first 15 minutes are really quite good, where basically you get some brief uh, exposition where, like you said, Max Gadlin, he's hired by this rich industrialist to go into this um, plagued city of the undead to rescue his daughter. And so what we see in this first 15 minutes is we get that brief exposition, okay, and then we basically get a 15-minute long chase sequence where we get tons of running zombies, and like we said, instead of the slow-moving zombies, they're doing lots of shaky cam, and I I, I really do appreciate and like the look of Lundgren and his commandos, because they're all smeared with grease, and they're all sweaty, they're wearing this black body armor. I also like how uh, Lundgren is wearing a bandana of sorts in this opening scene just to make him him look uh, more badass. One thing that does not unfortunately come off too too flattering and look, I mean, (laughs) I've never had a hip replacement surgery, but Lundgren was actually a couple years removed from having a hip replacement surgery. So in these... Okay, that was one of my notes. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there. Yeah, well, no, you can see that he's struggling a bit and, you know... Mm -hmm. (sighs) God bless him to be doing a film like this and trying his best running, considering what he has on, you know, half of his body is, is a replacement. You know what they should have done? I, I, I yeah. So for props. Yeah. Sorry. I keep stepping on you there. I apologize. Um, no. Yeah. I noticed the lumbering run that he had and I've never, it was quite noticeable and I know he's not that old in this film. He would have been at least, I, I guess maybe boy, 50, 48 or no 50 ah boy 53 maybe because i think he's 63 now or something so early 50s but yeah he was he was running really terribly and uh, what i what i would have done had i been them like yeah okay he's human you know he's got a hip replacement he's good for him to be out there and running and standing and doing all these this movement i would have had that opening sequence that you're talking about have him land on his hip make it so he's injured for the rest of the film Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. And then he's having to, yeah, I mean, that, that, that injury is affecting him throughout the film. I like that, actually. Then he just naturally, he's, because when you see this film, it was noticeable. It's like, he just, mm-hmm. I hate to say, he looked terrible running. He looked like an old man running. And I feel bad for saying that. But his gaunt yeah. and his run looked, it was slow and lumbering. And we're expecting him to run away from these zombies that are very fast. It was a juxtaposition that did not look very good. No. No, you know, but I mean, you, you already mentioned one of the revelations. Yeah, it turns out that the industrialists company. So the guy who hired Dolph, he is responsible for creating the virus that infected and then toppled the entire city. However, the film really never goes into detail about how this pandemic was originated or how it spread. It's just he created it. And then we also that's, find yeah, out that's a huge. That, okay, that, don't go away from that yet. That's a huge plot hole because we. <laughs> This okay. This opening fifteen sequence is basically an Expendables type breakout. Like they got, they've got uh, Dolph Lundgren and his team. They seem to be ex mercenaries as well. One guy gets away with the chopper. He gets to the chopper, gets out of the city. The other guys get the other guys get killed uh, by the uh, by the zombie attack. Uh, so now it's just the lone uh, lone wolf uh, Dolph who's going to go complete the mission by getting this uh, girl that they've been paid for to get her out of the city still. So everyone else has abandoned him, either through death or just like you know the mission's over. We can't we can't find her. The city's too big. 
which is a fair statement. Finding somebody in the city would be very hard. Um, so that being said, why are they not infected? Because it's never, it, it said the virus spread like wildfire, wildfire, that people were getting the virus and they had to shut down the city before it spreads to the rest of the world. Good plan. But now we've got soldiers in there and other survivors that live in the city that aren't infected and they give no indication why they're not infected. We do know that the infection does come from bites. So did everyone just get bitten that are infected? Is that the only way? Yeah. It's not airborne? They They never take the time to go into it because I think in the end – to to give uh, Mr. Hatton and the rest of the production crew a little bit of credit, I think in the end, their big goal was to get to the main conceit of this film. Robots and zombies, baby. That's what we and want. I for- and again, so, you know- even discussing this, even discussing this, I forgot there was robots. Okay? I'm, I'm telling you right yeah. now, I keep forgetting there's robots in this film. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I think when well, they showed up, I, I was at first I was like, oh, these guys are here Okay, so when the robots were first introduced, they were done in a very slow way. They were stomping around. And right. I thought originally it was the people that were protecting the perimeter were sending robots into the city to uh, enforce people not leaving. I didn't even consider that they were there to get the zombies until they did at the big turn. It reminded me of Terminator 2 that you didn't know that Arnold was a good Terminator and he ends up uh, protecting the boy instead of killing him. Remember that scene in the hallway? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if you didn't which know that Arnold was trailer. exactly. That was a, so if you'd gone, you know, they spoiled that in the trailer, which was so stupid. <laughs> and well, have... here's the goal. I I watched the trailer after watching this movie, and they spoil that reveal in the trailer. So I was one of the, maybe the few people that saw this film. I thought the robots were there to get the uh, the good guys, so to speak, the the uh, the main characters. I thought they were going to have to deal with zombies and robots. And so when the when the robots actually joined the team to get them out with the daughter. I don't know how I felt about that because I thought maybe it would have been more crazy that they're actually up against robots as well as zombies. Well, and I kind of, it kind of of felt like they got a, they got a buff from like a video game. They got like this, you know, like a a companion on this role-playing game where like, Oh man, this guy just kind of takes care of everybody. These robots are huge help, but it, it took the tension out of the film a little bit. Well, in the film, I mean, they do have some stakes to the film. I mean, there is there is a uh, a countdown or a timeline to the film because this is the other the other big revelation is that Gatling also has intel that the city is going to be firebombed in just a couple of days. So, what this gives our characters are some stakes as well as you know, like I said, a, a timeline to where they do have to get out of the city by a certain date or they are going to be you know nuked like everybody else. And so that is, that is one bit of information that uh, Dolph's character is sitting on for about the first hour or so of the film, I'd say before he finally lets everybody in on, okay, look, this is why I have to get you out. Yeah. Okay. So for our audience, yeah. If you're following this and I apologize to our listening audience for a few reasons, I apologize that you're trying to follow this plot here because it shouldn't be as confusing as, as it sounds, but they, they have robots that are killing the zombies. It's never indicated who sent the robots. Is it the same well, people that wanted to firebomb the city? Because that doesn't make any sense. Like, why send the robots now? And there's only five of them to kill millions of zombies if they're going to firebomb them the next day. Well, I think I think this is where it might be a good idea to, if we had seen the previous film, Robotropolis. Because my understanding in Robotropolis okay. is these robots were, in fact, the antagonists. They were killer robots that that everyone was having to you know, uh, 
survive and, and stop and defeat and everything. And so they do the character of Reese does in a very quick line of exposition where he says, these were robots that were created um, that ended up uh, turning on their creators and have just been right. kind of langu- that have just been languishing in the city. So I guess if you want to, you could say that it is a sequel to that previous film, but it could also stand on the two and two legs as well. Sure. <laughs> well, it has to because I watched this as a, as a standalone film. Did you hear where the robots walked from? They said where they came from. The one of the uh, Reese asked, "Where did you come from?" Did you hear where they walked from? Remind me again. He says, we walked from Japan. Nice. Now, I'm not a geographical expert, I admit, but Japan is a country surrounded by water. Uh, So you can't walk from a country outside of Japan by land. Unless they walked underwater. Maybe. I mean, if this film had more of a budget, then you could have gotten a really cool scene of them, uh, you know, converting into like some kind of, mobile underwater vessel or something like that. That, that would have looked sure. kind of cool, but it doesn't, it didn't have the, the budget or the resources and, to, to pull that So off. they, they walked from Japan again, who sent them? <sighs> I, I'm so, I'm so, uh, again, or like, I'm just again, confused. Ryan, this is ro- robots versus zombies, Ryan. We just have to, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Again, I don't blame it for the low budget. I, I Dolph did a great job. I actually enjoyed Dolph very much in this film. I thought he was great. I thought he handled his scenes very well. I thought he handled his action, action sequences very well. Um, but for me, this is kind of not really be a hot take, but I actually enjoyed the human drama, speaking about Walking Dead, much more than the action. I actually enjoyed... Um, okay, so when the movie first starts... You know, he he has a big sequence. For our listeners, it was a 15-minute cold open, which I couldn't believe. I checked the clock of the film. So the title card comes up, Battle of the Damned. And at the 15-minute mark, it's, oh, okay, interesting. Because the next part of the film is now, yeah, because it's ballsy in a weird way. Because Yeah, yeah, because how should I say this? It kind of makes the film be more important than it has any right to be, if that makes sense. Like, this is Battle of the Damned. It's like, okay. You know, like, but I like it at the same time because it's being treated like this is being on a big screen waiting for the, you know, people waited two years during this production to see this film. And, but we haven't, you know, but I like the idea that even the film starts off with, it's a Chris Hatton film. Like you do that when you're Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan, you don't do that when you're Chris Hatton, but I love the idea that, oh, it's a Chris Hatton film. Okay. This is going to be good. You know what I mean? Like, sorry, I don't mean to crap on this guy, but for your second big film to say, this is a Chris Hatton film. That's again, it's kind of a ballsy statement. Like this is a Ryan Rebulkin podcast, like stand by for some amazing stuff. Ladies and gentlemen. Well, and, Okay, so I mean, we and we already kind of danced around it, but before we get to the human component, which I'm glad you brought that up, so that's an excellent segue. I do want to just give a little bit of time to the character quirks that uh, Lundgren added to the character of Max Gatlin, and okay. we mentioned it briefly, but look, we have to mention it again. Okay, there's these little little character touches that I guess were in fact Dolph's idea. One is the uh, the reading glasses that we see him pull out quite a bit. And the dude. yeah, the classic, the he classic loves, aging, the aging uh, protagonist. You know, I wear glasses. I'm getting older. There you go. And the toothpick. Okay, you notice he always pulls out yes. that toothpick and puts it in. And so I can't help but wonder if, in these moments here, Lundgren is channeling not just Snake Plissken, 
but also Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. No, that's fair. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Scene. Yeah. So, anyway, but I mean, you you mentioned the human component, so let's just get there real quick, okay? I mean, so well, things before yeah before yeah before you do, we should say at this point in the film after the. The mercenary team has been split up or killed, and Dolph's, or Dolph's character, Gatling. By the way, Gatling, you know, is named after a gun. So I find it interesting. His last name happens to be a Gatling gun. That's the old Western gun, the, the old machine gun of the West, the, do, 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 you know, the one you rotate with a lever. And he doesn't get to fire at it, does he? No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would awesome. Yeah. But I love I love those names where it just so happens like you know this guy wasn't a kindergarten teacher. You know, he's a mercenary. Of course, last name Gatling. Okay. But, uh, it's like but, uh, it's like so the, that episode of Seinfeld when uh, <laughs> I don't know if you watch Seinfeld or did you watch Seinfeld? Oh, I love it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I called before. I got this notice in the mail. <sighs> Tropic of Cancer, Henry Miller. Uh, this case has been turned over to our library investigations officer, Mr. Bookman. Bookman. The library investigator's name is actually Bookman. <laughs> it's true. That's amazing. That's like an ice cream man named Cone. Well, Lieutenant Bookman's been working here for 25 years, so I think he's heard all the jokes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. That's exactly, exactly. There you go. So the next sequence is we see the, a female, a female character on her own, and she's got this, like, crazy makeup under her eyes. Uh, she looks like a video game character. She's got her hoodie up, which is a terrible thing to do. If you're, If you're trying to avoid zombies that run very fast, I would recommend not blocking out your peripheral vision. <laughs> so it's always a weird movie trope when you see the main characters blocking all their view behind them or to the side with a hoodie on. If you ever put on a hoodie, you can't see to the left or right of you. Well, there is, I'm glad you brought that up because there is, in my opinion, a really effective and a really awesome jump scare in that scene where she's in that yes. convenience store. Yes. You know the the scene I'm talking about? It's one of my notes, and I oh. will say that was a legit. Don't watch the trailer, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to watch this movie. I guess now we're telling it to you. But that was a moment where it was at, actually at that moment where I was hopeful that we had something different here. So that it was okay. actually a legit, a legit, like we have a, even though it's straight to video and a lower budget, which is fine. I don't fault it for having a lower budget than your standard films in Hollywood because that's just what they are. I thought, oh, that's a well shot. I'd actually, and I'm a guy that doesn't scare easily. I don't scare in movies, but I was like, oh, okay, that was good. That was pretty effective. So, and I mean, okay, so spoiler, I'll just say it right now. So basically Jude, that's the character's name. She's in this convenience store trying to get rifling through, trying to get some supplies. The convenience store worker who is one of these zombies is behind the counter. He appears to be asleep. And so the camera moves from moves to Jude's character trying to get something off the wall. Then it goes back to, you know, sleepy convenience store clerk. But in this shot, his eyes are wide open. He is staring right at her and just jumps at her. I'll tell you what, man, I I jumped at this part. I, I think that was so well done and so yeah. effective. No, I absolutely agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, so how so, come the zombies don't climb ladders? That's a good point. But they they do sprint like hell, man. They I'll sprint. Give them that. So they're able to nav. They're able to navigate corners. They're able to chase after their prey. We do see them do stairs, but they're unable to climb a ladder. I didn't even think or about a gate. that. 
Well, because we see a scene where Dolph escapes them by going over a gate and they just crash into the gate and to reach out for him. You know, it's an effective scene that, you know, they're grasping for the character and Dolph puts in his toothpick and says, ha ha, you can't get me type posture. But I'm like, why don't they know to climb over the gate the same way they climb a stair or navigate a corner? Well, I, so <laughs> you, you brought up a really, a really good question, but here's the next question I had is, when Dolph does rescue, or Dolph's character, Max Gallen, when he finally does rescue the Jude character, I, I, I had to rewind it because I was struggling with, okay, how did he find this motorcycle and how did he find her as easily as he did? I guess maybe he was just traveling where there was noise, I guess, right? And we should also tell the audience that the zombies come out when there's noise. They make that very clear, but they're inconsistent again with either where the zombies are located or their care factor about making noise. So the motorcycle is extremely loud. So his rescue vehicle is the noisiest thing he could find. (laughs) So he's driving around his vehicle to pick up the, his uh, mission, the daughter, who turns out to be this girl, Jude. We don't know how, there's no indication why or how he found her. We're almost led to believe they already knew each other. And then we find out they didn't know each other. And in her mind, Jude's mind, She's just had a six foot four Hulk of a figure, quote unquote, rescue her. He doesn't even tell her anything, just basically kidnaps her, takes her to his place. And she's like, just so you know, I'm not going to sleep with you. And that's a good comment to make, because at this point, we don't know if he's just like a rapist. He hasn't told her anything. Why does he say, hey, I know this is all overwhelming. You just got chased by zombies. I'm happy to save you. But just so you know, I'm actually here to not just save you from the zombies that were chasing you, but I'm here to get you out of the city. I was hired to do so. There's nothing to fear. But he acts angry towards her. Isn't that, I mean, okay, I I get that. Isn't it a cool shot, though? I mean, I just, that's what I took away most from this entire moment here is just how wicked Dolph looked sitting on a Harley holding a hatchet and using a hatchet to slice and dice zombies. I thought that was pretty effective and looked really, really cool. I thought that's a great sequence, but that's where he's like, it's almost like a Terminator part. Go come with me if you want to live, you know, like that's exactly what happens. He comes on a motorcycle, Terminator style takes out the zombies with the ax. Great effective. Again, silent killer. Use the ax. You'll spare your bolts. A lot of great hand-to-hand combat against zombies in this film to spare your bolts and to be quieter about it, not to attract more zombies. But there should have just been, like, I'm not a director, I'm not a writer, but if I was a quality, I always wanted to be a quality control person on the set. Like, I would have said, okay, at this moment, these two characters have met for the first time. There has to be a more of a human, naturalistic way of saving her. She should be like, I'm, she should almost been like, I don't know if I want to get on this bike. But then she looks over her shoulder and goes, but I've got 30 zombies chasing me. It's either the stranger who looks scary in his own right, jump on his bike and get away from the zombies and deal with him later, talk to him later, or I take on the zombies. But there was no indication that she just jumped right on like they've known each other forever. And then when they get to his house or wherever he's been holed up, you know, she's like wondering if she's going to get raped. Like there was no discussion. Well, fun fact real quick, because, I mean, I I did do a little bit of research, and I don't know if uh, you found this as interesting as I did or not, but as I was going back through and looking at all of the uh, various uh, actors in this particular film, um, I looked up Jude, and so the actress who plays Jude, um, her name is Melanie Zanetti, so for me, Ryan, this was a really fun fact, okay, Um, she does her her most recent uh, uh, acting gig is she does voice work on a cartoon series on Disney called Bluey. 
And this is, I don't know if okay. your kids, they, they might be a little too old for it, but my kids adore this show. It is an Australian cartoon um, about a, a family of uh, Australian cattle dogs, I'm assuming, and the wacky adventures they get into. But uh, she plays the mom. So I guess we can say uh, Dolph here, uh, there's there's degree of separation between uh, Dolph and uh, Disney. I guess right, right there. There you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dol- <laughs> pretty soon Dolph will be a Disney character. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that was my biggest complaint about that because even I, as a viewer, was confused. I was, I was like, is this his mission? Like, it wasn't until like we didn't even know as a viewer. I we assumed it was the daughter, but she looked very capable in her own right because we figured she got this like this cool makeup job under her eyes. She's kind of she's she's survived so far in this city. So we know that she can kind of take care of herself. There was some fighting that she did on her own before she quote unquote got rescued by uh, Dolph's character. So I'm like, is this the daughter? Because she's doing okay so far on her own. And if she wanted to be saved or in any indication she needed saving, she wasn't showing it just yet. I I just, yeah, I, it might've been like, are you Jude? Yes, I am. Well, get on my bike because I'm here for you. And she could just say, well, who are you? We'll explain later as the zombies are coming. You know, like just some sort of indication. Because as an audience member, we didn't even know they didn't know each other. It almost seemed like they didn't know each other until she's like accusing her, accusing him of sexual assault incoming. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but it's the right thing for her to say. Cause at this point she's had a whole bike ride with him. She's entered his, her house without any struggle. She's just followed him into the house. And then she's like, what do you want of me? <laughs> well, I mean, and the film, I mean, for me at least, okay, this film is like 85 minutes. Okay. It does slow way down. So basically Jude takes Max Gatlin back to where she has been living. And so we encounter the character of Duke, basically the character of Duke, along with a a group of other random survivors. There's only like five of them really are living in this huge palatial mansion with, it's uh, huge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this gigantic mansion, and they are under strict orders just to never leave the compound. And so, of course, they do end up leaving the compound uh, eventually. But, um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of distrust there where um, Jude and the, this Duke character don't really trust Gatlin, but then they eventually learn to kind of uh, join forces. But, yeah, it does, uh, it does grind to a halt in these moments, and we get some character. Well, that's the irony. That's the irony. This is where I was interested. See, and okay, so that's where I guess you and I disagree a bit. But uh, on the other hand, I do kind of like it because they do give some characterization to these characters, okay? We find out, uh, we'll get to one of the you know big plot points of the film, I guess. It's discovered that Jude is pregnant with the child yeah. of, uh, uh, Reese. you know, Reese. Yeah, so basically they have a kid on the way. So once Reese discovers that, oh, oh wow, Jude is pregnant with my child – he enlists Gatlin to where he says, okay, you know what? I trust you. You're a badass. You're efficient at what you do. You need to get me and Jude and our unborn child the hell out of the city, please. Especially before it's firebombed. Yeah, so we should go back to Duke, who's an older gentleman. He's basically running some sort of cult-like compound. Yeah. But he's, but he's basically of saying... five people. Of five people, exactly. <laughs> and three are Caucasian, two are Asian. And again, this is an Asian city, but we... So the odds are, you would think five survivors, you would think the odds, if you, okay, if you had a city of a million people in some random Asian city, right, and you were to tell me there's going to be five survivors out of a million people, would you have guessed three of them would have been white? But, we, but we're never told quite how they met, 
how they formed trust enough to stay together. Why, why were those three Caucasians in the same geographical area of survivors? How did they survive as long as they did before they met up? How is their house or, or, or mansion fortified? It's not really shown or told, um, but they're able to sustain their life as long as they have in this chaos of zombies. I'm glad they showed survivors. I was hoping there would be more random ones running around. We're led to believe it's just the five of them out of this millions and millions and millions of people. Because, well, let's be honest, it's a pretty big city. You can assume there's at least a million people in the city. I, I'm just, there, I felt there was more of a story to be told about why they were the way they were in a fairly short period of time. Well, that was actually one of the questions that I did ask uh, Chris Hatton. And, oh, you, you know, right. I did I did mention the fact that, okay, did you guys consider more of a backstory between Gatlin's character and everything? Like, did you guys consider a sequel or anything like that? And they were kind of developing and kind of spitballing some some ideas here and there. But unfortunately, that never uh, that never got underway. Yeah, but, um, I, even, I can't. Cool. But, but you don't have to do a big backstory. This isn't an episode of Lost where they have to all have their own episode. I'm just – they could have just said we were um, – they could have easily just said we were working at the factory. Or we were we, we were we worked together at uh, some sort of whatever. We're, we're, let's be honest. We're white people who speak English are working. So pick, I don't know, language school, um, some sort of uh, international uh, facility, and uh, we – somehow didn't get infected. We don't know how or why, but we have stuck together. We've made it our goal to stay alive. And so what I've done here is this Duke guy could have said, what I've done is we've established this place as a safety zone and we don't know how long we can live here, but we just know we've lived here as long as we have. And so if we leave, that's where the danger is. So we never leave alone. Jude should have left. Now she's come back with this big guy who we don't trust. Uh, and yeah. And, I, I don't know. I, that took me twenty seconds. I, I don't know why they couldn't just say this is where how we we you know we've worked together. That's why we already have this. We already have relationships. But they have this, the, the, particularly the Asian sword fighter. He had this real loyalty to Duke, but it's never explained why. Why are you so loyal to this guy? You guys just met out of an apocalypse not that long ago. Like we're not led to believe this has been going on for six years. This was like a matter of I don't know. Uh, maybe a few months, maybe six months, maybe even a year max, maybe. But again, I don't know how long you could sustain a quarantine around a city. This is, it's interesting. The zombies themselves, did they ever leave the quarantine? I guess they just got shot down. Uh, I'm in the military. Not that I know very much because I'm in the Navy, but to secure a city, the manpower required for that is huge. It's very easy just to get away like in the dead of night, just walk away do they have every square inch covered? The amount of manpower and time it would take to cover a city block, let alone a city limit, that's incredible manpower. You think at that point they would just, if they're able to uh, circle the city with people with weapons, why don't they just go through the city and start shooting everybody? Well, there's your sequel. There, there, there <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't mean to. And then, and then they're going to nuke the city anyways. Right. So right. what are well, we waiting uh, for here? Well, let's okay. I, I I completely you know uh, sympathize and, and agree with all of those. L- let's get to the robots real quick. We've kind of talked about <laughs> oh, yeah, the robots. The robots. I keep forgetting. I keep forgetting. There's let's robots the in this robots. film. I'm not even joking. Oh, the robots. Sorry. <laughs> so yes, okay, so let's, okay. Let's talk about them because the robots versus zombie fights. Again, again, this is I think what 
the big uh, the big factor was that uh, got this film made. Okay, that was th- that this film was sold on. Okay, so Gallen and Reese are in the city. Um, like I said, Reese he he hires he doesn't really hire, but he enlists Gatlin. Reese says, "Look, I need you to get us out." Okay, and of course, you know Jude is is Gatlin's mission. Okay, to get her out as well. So as they're in the city, they encounter this uh, rogue army of killer robots who are just wandering the city. Five. And they discover, yeah, there, there you go. And they discover that, uh, what, these machines, they are extremely skilled at dispatching zombies. So what what Gatlin does is he reprograms them so that they are now soldiers who are going to assist Gatling in uh, destroying the zombie hordes. Go move. Good doggy. Say what? Do you require medical assistance? What? What do you mean? Are you injured? No. Okay, so now what? What are you? Advanced utility robots. Duh. Where do you come from? These models were assembled at Medora Industries Robotics Hub, Tokyo. How'd you get here? We walked. You dangerous? I do not understand. Are you... gonna hurt us? No. You ever hurt anyone? Yes. Ever killed anyone? Yes. Why did you do it? The operating code of all models in service on the Medora Deep Crescent location was corrupted causing a system-wide execution error. You got that? Okay, so... So what happened? The error was corrected. What about them? I do not understand. Well, they're dead. You killed them. They are not people. How do you know that? Sensory devices indicate normothermic values are too low. They are not people. Means they're too cold. Can I, uh... Can I touch you? Yes. Whoa, serious nergasm. And so we do get... And again, this is something else. I, I hate to keep referring back to, uh, you know, the episode that I did, you know, three years ago or so. But this is something else that uh, Christopher Hatton said. Is He said, look, we wanted to have a lot of robots versus zombies fights, but unfortunately we didn't have the, uh, the budget and the resources to pull that off. So sure. we do, we do get a few that's in there. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but in these robots versus zombie fights, what we get is we get tons of shaky cam and then close up shots of the action. And so, I have a theory about this here, and I, I thought I'd get your opinion on that. To see well, where, yeah, the shaky you... cam was, yeah, the shaky cam, uh, it's, and I don't mean an insult to Mr. Hatton if he's listening to this uh, podcast. It, it's just a way to save money because you don't have to quite there CGI. You yeah, you kind of shake it up a little bit. It's like, oh, the makeup job or the bad CGI. You, you never get a chance to focus on it. Well, we see this. We see this in a lot of big budget. I mean, let's be perfectly honest, Ryan. We see shaky cam in a tons of, in a ton of uh, big budget. And I hate shaky stuff cam. I don't like nowadays. shaky cam at all. And and I, I think I I think I have it figured out now. I've seen enough movies now where I figured out. I think directors, producers, whoever it may be, 
I think that shaky cam is almost as a, it's almost kind of a sort of a special effects bandaid of sorts where it can hide some of the shortcomings that are, that are there in terms of the special effects and the fight scenes, et cetera, but still look respectable and still look cool. Same thing with slow motion. If you think about it, a lot of, um, a lot of films, I mean, and I I hate the dog, Mr. Jean-Claude Van Damme. I love Mr. Jean-Claude Van Damme, but let's think about it. Every time in one of those movies in the early nineties, every time he did his famous 360 jump kick, it was always in slow motion. Why was it always in slow motion? Because it looks badass. If you ever see him do that kick when it's not in slow motion, it's just kind of meh. Now, granted, it's, it's not it's so fast. It's so it's you know, fast it's too. So you don't, yeah. And so, yeah, shaky cam, slow motion. These are camera techniques and trickery, if you want to call it that. That kind of um, that kind of hide what the the budget can't do. And so, in these scenes where the zombies, or excuse me, where the robots are just slaughtering the zombies, again, we see. Lots of shaky cam, but all we also see is pretty much just close-up shots of the robot heads and torso, as well as the zombie faces. And then it immediately cuts away, and you just see the aftermath. And it's like, oh, I guess, I guess the zombies or the the robots just tore everything apart here in that quick twenty seconds. Let me be. Uh, I feel like I'm, and I well, look, the film deserves the critiques I'm giving it, uh, but I will give it credit where credit is due. And one of them, well, of course, I'll say it again. Dolph was great in the film. He's very. Uh, this is a film that showcased his ability to carry a film, which I hope he. I mean, I have to go back and watch other films that, uh, where he does this, where he's kind of given a, a a movie with a huge plot holes, which is fine. This is part of movies i understand and i always say movies have to live within their own universe i'm not trying to compare the plot holes to real life i'm just saying within this universe i didn't understand the inconsistencies and why things were happening the way they were but uh that being said i do give the filmmakers credit that they filmed all this in the daylight now i don't know if that was i don't know if that was just to save money so they had to have lighting rigs or whatever but the majority of the film the majority there were some underground scenes uh, in the finale of the movie and uh, inside the building scenes but i will give them a credit where they didn't hide cgi and fighting scenes everything was broad daylight and so as a viewer it was all visible. There wasn't any dark scenes. Cause again, that's another trick that filmmakers make that I hate is like, can I see the movie please? <laughs> so this movie, mm-hmm. at least I got to watch it. It was there. I got to see everything. It was nice and bright. Well, I think this is also, I mean, and I've, I've echoed this on, uh, on previous episodes of the show, but because <laughs> I don't know if you knew this or not, Ryan, but this is not the first post-apocalyptic movie that uh, Dolph Lundgren has Get had out. the pleasure of doing. Yeah. But I think, this is one of the one of the big perks to where a lot of directors like to do films that are uh, that take place in like a post apocalyptic world because if you really really think about it, a movie that takes place in this um, you know post apocalyptic wasteland or what you what, what what have you, these are relatively cheap to make and produce because if you really think about it, you don't need much in terms of sets, okay, and what sets you do have can be uh, half built if you will. And then you can also film in uh, daylight and use natural lighting. So you don't have to rig lighting or anything like that. And so it makes sense why, I mean, if you think about it, think about all of the, uh, the direct video films that came out in the, throughout the nineties and the early two thousands, they all took place in the future, but the future was a wasteland. It's not like, it's not because they wanted to tell a, uh, a a new Mad Max type story. It's because it's cheap to make. It was cheap to produce. You know what I mean? Right. 
So I'll give them credit for that. And we also get, I mean, and I don't want to throw it out there because it was also in the, the trailer for the film, but there is a great money shot of the film and I'm, or, and I'm sure you picked up on it as well. Um, but right. I think this is one of the things that was sold. We get a great uh, money shot where Dolph and one of the robots are standing back to back firing their machine guns. <laughs> it reminded right. me of that shot in the, uh, the first Avengers movie. Do you remember that where they're all, where the camera circles right. around the team as they're gearing up. That's what we get there. Yeah. Well, yeah. In the uh, Marvel universe and the Chris Hatton universe are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also give the credit to the just as, a, as I was about to write the note. Did the robots ever run out of ammo? They did. I'll give them credit. They ran out of ammo. So there you go. Again, a credit to the uh, to the quote unquote realism. The ro- robots said, uh, "Oh, we've run out of ammo," and then they just started beating zombies with their fists. I like the. I'm going to go back to it though. I like the idea you brought up earlier about writing Dolph's uh, hip injury into the script. Cause then that would have been cool as well. Where Dolph said, look, I can't take on these hordes by myself. I need to enlist these robots here. You know what I mean? Like they can, they can do physically what I cannot do at this moment here. I think that would have been kind of cool. Agreed. Now, what did you think of, uh, what seemed like it should have taken a long time, but I think in movie time, it might've taken two hours. Dolph and his, uh, and Jude, they, equip these robots with like inspector gadget guns and stuff. <laughs> and, and they armor these robots up even more to, to, for the final battle. What did you think of that little, uh, 18 montage? I, hey, it was a montage. I, I, I appreciate montages when they're shown, uh, in, in, in films. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, at that point, to be perfectly honest, Ryan, I was kind of like, look, it's robots versus zombies. I'm not. I'm not expecting too much more here. And uh, and you know, to be perfectly honest, on that front, I think it delivered. Okay, it's just when they came out, and they literally like the dog robot was wearing spiked armor. Yeah. I guess there was that little sequence where we see the point of vision through the robot dog's robotic eyes, and we're seeing him skewer zombies as he runs through them with his spikes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was just like, okay, it's fine, it's fine, it's fair, it's fun. I did look. I, I wasn't laughing at the film. I was just like, okay, I know it's, I know it's silly, but I, again, I, I just, it looked a little bit corny. But I was like, you know what? That's fine. He just built it in two hours. I was, I was almost more bugged on how quickly he was able to do it. <laughs> That's all. Well, if we look at the the third act of the film, I mean, the final battle that takes place. Um, this is pretty interesting here. I don't know if uh, if you notice this or not either. Okay, but the final battle takes place in an abandoned shopping mall. So this came from uh, Chris Hatton. Okay, this is instant production value here. So what we're seeing on screen, this is an actual abandoned shopping mall that completely sat empty and desolate. Supposedly, it was uh, rumored to be haunted. So people, people never really uh, went near it. And so again, from a production standpoint that takes place in this uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland, that's pretty cool. The fact that they found this, uh, this old building that they really didn't have to dress up and they shot everything there. I think that's a pretty um, economic, that's pretty efficient. And and it it looked good. It did look good. Yeah, and it, and it did look good because I was thinking while I was watching, of course, I think this is a stupid statement. I was thinking while I was watching uh, that the set looked really good, and there you go. That makes sense. They they kind of had a ready-to-go set, so it worked in their favor. Okay. And so, okay, spoiler, I guess. Um, sure. Gatlin, <laughs> Jude, and Reese, 
They are able to escape the firebombing, but uh, Gatlin here. Yeah, come on, come on. Okay, slow down, slow down. Bombs <laughs> of nuclear power were dropped on them, and you know how the ladies and gentlemen, you know how you could escape a nuclear blast. Uh, this is science. This is actually science. Just go underwater. Water, you know, deflects nuclear warheads. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I love how I you know, they would you. they would have been cooked. Bill Nye. Yeah, they would oh man. <laughs> they would have been cooked alive at the very least. But I love how they come out of the water and there's literally fire. And this was very poor CGI fire. But there was fire all around them. They're having a conversation, like, no, nah, no feeling of the heat or pain or the fire that's enveloping because you're in water. So there you go. To escape nuclear warfare, guys, just sit in your bathtub. There you go. <laughs> or uh, what did Indiana Jones do? Didn't he get into a refrigerator? Uh, refrigerator? Yeah. There you go. He got no yeah, refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to go there with that. That yeah. Well, so right before credits roll, um, we do see Gallen. He's faced with a dilemma here, right? His mission was to not only rescue Jade, but to also to eliminate anyone who could be a quote unquote whistleblower regarding the whole outbreak. And so he's he's faced with okay, do I kill Reese or not? However, he declines. He doesn't do it, and the three walk off into an unknown future with the last remaining robot on their side. So apparently they've established a uh, kind of a bizarre little family unit and uh, (laughs) some kind of jokes here. Gallen even suggests that they name uh, their unborn child Max. And then he asks the robot to fetch him a coffee as the credits roll. So I, I would love to see the sequel here that would originate between Reese, Jude, Baby Max, Max, and the robot here. I think that's a sitcom in the making. So, I was half expecting the robot to actually leave to find coffee. I'm not even joking. It's like it's going to leave. It's going to follow the order blindly and go grab some coffee. But it didn't. Well, okay. So here we are. I mean, I know we've we've really gone the gamut of this film, but I mean, it, look, it's an 85 sorry. film. Yeah, it's 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 robots versus zombies in an post apocalyptic world. Dolph plays a character named Max Gatlin, who pretty much fires. Well, what is it? He stands side by side robots and uh, and blasts zombies away with a machine gun. It, it's really kind of interesting because this was actually. I remember when the film was uh, in pre production and I was following it. I was kind of surprised because for Dolph, I was like, man, this is. This is a pretty wild and weird project for Dolph to do. He hadn't really done anything horror related, if you will, in his career. Right. What science fiction films he had done were were pretty, you know, few and far between. So it was just really wild him in the wake of his uh, Expendables comeback for him to sign on for a movie, not only where he's battling zombies, but teaming up with robots. It was like, this could be the weirdest thing Dolph has ever done. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But not a bad film. And I know I critiqued it, but I have to. I have to critique with the parts, like I said, that I struggled with the most. Uh, Just the plot holes were so big that they could have easily been fixed with a little bit more narrative. That's all. You can save a lot. You don't have to have a storyboard. You don't have to even show it. You don't have to do CGI. They could have just narrated a little bit more to each other why the group is the way they were, the, the humans that were found. Because, in fact, after... Dolph got Jude at the beginning of the film and had her. I was actually hoping and say, Oh, I hope there's a band of survivors that we get to meet. I was hoping for it and we got it. And they were actually fairly interesting. The leader Duke, the leader of this group was actually a very interesting character. And I actually enjoyed the interactions. But again, I was just like, but why are you together? 
And so I kind of like when some of the members died the way they died, I didn't really feel much of it because I didn't know why they were a group to begin with. A quick narrative would have explained that. Um, again, a quicker narrative or a quick narrative just explain how they were able to quarantine and who exactly what, what nation or company was agreeing to not let people. So the rule was, I don't think we even stated quite enough is that nobody was allowed to leave the city, whether they were infected or not. So they're just saying if it sucks to be you to be in the city of zombies. And so it's a real barbaric <laughs> thing that they wouldn't even take survivors. So survivors weren't even allowed to leave the city, but no explanation of who authorized this, who's enforcing this, and why. Well, Again, okay, a quick so, narrative could have just said why. You know, yeah. you know, they don't want it to spread. Okay, but we see that there's survivors who aren't getting infected. Should we study this? Also, what nations are supported? They would never allow this to happen. No survivors can leave. They would never nuke a city with the survivors there. It's just impossible. But this was allowed to happen. Again, by what nation and what authorization? Well, okay, so story quibbles aside, okay, I do have to ask because I, I always like to do two sure. recommendations. I like to do two recommendations, Brian, one as a film in general and one as a Dolph Lundgren film. So I, you've, you've basically kind of given us your, your recommendation as far as a, a zombie film, but what about, what about as a Dolph Lundgren film, okay, someone who has not seen a heck of a lot of Dolph's direct video stuff, what do you think? Where does this one stand for you? Well, absolutely. If you're a fan of, of of Dolph Lundgren, you need to see this film. Uh, you know, I I enjoyed it, and I like Dolph. And here's the thing: I do like him. It is a straight to video. It is lower budget. Go in with let's say zero expectations, but go in with the knowledge that it it is within the genre that it is, and it is a lot of fun. And I kind of feel bad that people have been spoiled on the robots, but you'll still get a kick out of them. The robots actually are not bad at all. The CGI isn't horrible. Their personalities or how they operate isn't is pretty good. Like, I don't really have any real complaints about it. I just, as a film, I enjoyed the human dynamics more than the actual fighting of the zombies. Uh, not that I've seen it before. It's been there, done that. It's just that kind of stuff. Maybe as I get older, I was actually, here's the thing. I was actually thinking, had I seen this same movie with a younger Dolph, but everything else the same in 1994, when I was 18 years old, I probably would have really liked it. If that makes sense. I'm just a little bit older and I've seen, been there, done that with fight sequences. So nothing new with the fighting of zombies, nothing original. Uh, but for a doll film and for <laughs> robots versus zombies, well, it's the first of its kind, I think. So sure, why not? Well, with uh, thank you very much for that. With with regard to my recommendation, I you know, I mean, we've basically said it. I think there's really not much to say about this one. I mean, this is, I think this is a fun movie. Okay, I think yes, that's the best uh, the best word you can use to describe it. Watch it's it with fun. a group of people, maybe. Watch it with some yeah. friends. Maybe even with a beverage, kind of like you and I have. Uh, yeah, have I had. agree. There you go. <laughs> um, is it exactly high art? Obviously not. No, but I think no. considering what the director and the production team and everyone had to work with in terms of budget and shooting days, I think they pulled off a pretty cool and atmospheric action horror movie thing. I think the uh, – I said it earlier, but I'll echo it again. I think the color palette and the um, the dark, you know, the the – the darkness to the film that we see is very, mm-hmm. very striking. And I honestly do think if this film had more resources at its disposal, then mm. this is a conceit that I think that I could see going theatrical for like a summer blockbuster release. You know what I mean? Every summer we've had a Transformers movie for Granite Lab. Right. So can you imagine, you know, a, a zombies versus robots type apocalypse movie? I could see something like that, uh, 
uh, going theatrical. What, what was the one that we had years ago with uh, the giant robots fighting like the Godzilla monsters? What was that? Pacific oh, Rim? Pacific Rim? Yeah. yeah I never saw that. Go. Yeah. So. Yeah. But in the end, I think uh, at its core, this is a uh, – if you had to describe this film to anybody, this is Dolph Lundgren, killer robots, and zombies. So I think if that idea is appealing to you, then I think there is some fun to be had here. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And uh, I guess in a selfish way, I, I got to enjoy it even more knowing that I was going to do an episode with you on your podcast. And I feel honored that you asked me to be a part of your show. Yeah, no. Well, and I, I had a fun, I'm, I, you know, talking this film with you. I'm sorry that it, uh, it took us so long to, uh, to get together, but uh, we've been running around in the same circles for the past couple of years. And we've been talking about it that, uh, you know, here we are. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to give a, a shout out to or a plug or mention? I know that uh, I know we talked about going the distance, but uh, anything else that you're working on or anything else you want yeah, to uh, I, mention? I do have another podcast. I don't talk about it all that much, and maybe I should more because maybe get some more <laughs> more listens. But I think it's a lot of fun. It's called the Worst of the Best Podcast. Again, it's the Worst of the Best. What we basically do is is we pick a topic, whether it's a a musical artist, an album, an actor, actress, or a topic like a conspiracy theory, whatever it might be. And then we break it down to whatever the best of that thing is. And then at the end of it, we discuss each point, you know, the best, this is the best that. And we, at the end of it, me and my co-host, whoever it is for that week, we then discuss what we think is the worst from the best. So for example, the whole show started when I started again with my brother a few years back. Uh, the idea was he was listening to one of his favorite albums and uh, from Pearl Jam back in the day. And he was listening to it again. And he's like, oh, man, this is such a great album. But he's like, even even this album has a stinker. you know. So everything that is the best, there's always something that's the worst of that best. And so that's the uh, how that show started. And, uh, for example, we just did Metallica, uh, the Black Album, uh, because that's their best-selling album, right? So we that's why... So that's how that fell in. So this is their best-selling album. It might not be your favorite album by Metallica, which is, isn't me and my brothers. So we talk about that. But we then pick what we think is the worst song from their best-selling album. So that's how it works. That's a cool concept. That is a yeah, really the cool worst concept. of the best. Yeah, the worst of the best. So your listeners, if you're listening to this, guys, trust me. Check it out. We've got over 100 episodes, and there's topics that, you know, I guarantee you there's a topic an actor, celebrity, or something that would be of interest to you. I think the way we break it down, you might enjoy uh, it's not so much just the reveal of the worst pick. I think our, our discussion as we talk about each point before our reveal is, is quite fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, cool. Yeah, well, thanks, for letting um, me, uh, thanks for letting me plug that. Yeah, no, of course. And um, again, uh, we, we have uh, joined forces. We are uh, on the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network, so there's tons of other cool podcasts. Um, this one, obviously, but uh, uh, yours as well as um, all of the others looking at, uh, at the true action heroes of the 80s and the 90s are, are all over there. Absolutely. I love it. I love that you're part of it. Thanks for trusting us. I think, were you the first one that joined? I think I might have been because you guys were already, you know, you guys already had the Sylvester Stallone ones, but uh, I was the first one after that. And then uh, the other ones just kept coming. So, yeah, that's amazing. So, thanks for trusting us and uh, being a part of of that umbrella. Well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break this podcast.